was mentioned earlier here, and I'm sure at all the uh, campuses and venues, uh, this is Palm Sunday. Uh, you guys don't know this, I mean, but Palm Sunday is actually one of my favorite, if you will, holy days because of the message that I get to give. And uh, the message that I'm going to share with you today, uh, I can just promise you, is quintessential Palm Sunday, but it, it's a message that a lot of Christians have yet to really get about the Lord. And so I'm, I'm actually very excited to share these truths with you. So let's bow and pray, and then we're going to dive right in. God, our Heavenly Father, um, one thing I know, because your word makes this so clear, is that you love everybody in this world. You love your creation. They matter to you. You made them. And Lord, your desire, as we're going to see today, is that even in the midst of all of our fallenness and even our sinfulness, you desire for all to turn and come back to you. And so, God, as we unpack a bit of what that means today through Jesus' riding into Jerusalem, I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that, Lord, you would speak to each one of us here, and then at Cactus Campus and at the chapel and venue, those watching online, speak to us each individually and then collectively as a whole. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin by sharing with you something that I believe every one of you knows intuitively about life, but maybe you've never been able to verbalize it or even visualize it, and it's this, that life is built upon expectations. It's true. Life is built upon expectations. In other words, whether it's your marriage, your friendships, your parenting, your coworkers at the job, your service providers, how you interface with society and cultural in general, the reality is, is that you carry a set of expectations into every single scenario that you walk into. And I'm telling you, those expectations determine the quality of life that you have. And here's the equation of how this works. You begin with the expectations that you have, again, in any given scenario in life. And what I've learned and what you have learned is that if your expectations are too high, if they're too lofty, if they're unrealistic, you experience what I call PDS, profound disappointment syndrome. Anybody ever experienced that? You set your expectations way too high, and because of that, you are disappointed in whatever scenario you're in. But then conversely, it works the opposite. If your expectations are too low, I would argue that you've experienced shallow living syndrome. In other words, you've set the bar way too low, and you're kind of unimpressed in living shallowly. And again, this is true in every aspect of life. Uh, probably the area that most of us have experienced it in probably most profoundly is marriage. And any of you married here today or previously married or looking to get married, about every one of us falls into that category. And, and, and my, the one I smile at the most is, is newlyweds. Uh, we do a lot of counseling here at our church, and it is not uncommon for a couple who'd been married for maybe a year or two to come in and see one of our pastors, and they're just in a, in a train wreck of a situation. And, and when we probe as to why, we get these types of answers. The girl many times will say, well, you know, I've been dreaming of this guy since I was a little girl. 
And I've read romance novels and watched Lifetime for Women. And I've seen lots of Hallmark movies. And this was supposed to be my Prince Charming. And he acted so good during engagement. But now that we're married, and what is she experiencing? Profound disappointment syndrome. Because he's not like the guy in the Hallmark Channel movies. He's not like the, the romance novels. He's a normal guy. And let's face it, he behaved himself during engagement, right? I mean, he put on his best show. He was looking to get married. And now he's a different guy in many ways. And that kind of goes to the other end, because then we look at the guy and say, well, hey, what's your problem? And he goes, well, you know, hey, I, I'm kind of happy, you know, I, I, I get a meal and she doesn't whine too much and I get to watch TV and play video games still. And again, in my generation, I go, really, really, you're playing video games? But that's what these kids do. And, and you know, we realize that maybe this guy has set his bar a little bit too low. And what we end up doing in our marriage counseling is trying to do this. We try to, 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 to make the expectations too high, a little bit more realistic. But then we say to those who have them too low, hey, you know what? There is this thing called intimacy and other-centeredness and, and, and closeness. And, and, and we try to bridge the gap here. Here's my point. I think that this equation works in every aspect of life. I see it work in parenting, your job, friendships. Again, as I said earlier, even how you interface with society and culture and politics. I find it even works with sports. Now, some people ask me, how is it that I can be a Cleveland Browns fan all these years? <laughs> and this is why. This is about where my expectations are for the Cleveland Browns. And as a result of the bar, not, by, not being in the shallow end, but just above it, I don't get disappointed very often with them. <laughs> it's actually a true story. Last year when they were 0-16, you know, people would call me during halftime on a couple of the games and they'd say, the Browns are up. It looks like they might win. And my response would be, I've seen this movie before. They have it in them to lose. Just keep watching. And sure enough, they, they would. And it all comes back to expectations. So why is this important to understand? Here's the deal. Uh, once you have gotten this, and I would argue that all of you have, you just might not have been able to verbalize or visualize it. But once you've gotten this, what you need to know further, now this is really amazing, is that this same principle is no different with God. It's no different with God. In other words, here's the deal about your spiritual life. God wants you and me to know certain things about him, key and crucial things about how he operates in our lives, how he relates to us as his beloved creation, and these truisms about God that the Bible gives us helps set our expectations on who he is and what he is up to in this world, even in our very lives. In other words, expectations, I would argue, are the key to knowing and relating to God. And no story teaches us this more clearly and pointedly than the story of Palm Sunday, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem just a few days before his death as the crowds were cheering him on after having followed him the previous three years. Because you see, in the midst of all of this activity and that story that we read earlier, what you need to understand is that if there's 
anything we need to know about the crowds, and we're going to learn a lot about them here in just a few minutes, but the most fundamental thing about these crowds is that they were expectant. Give me a head nod that y'all can understand that. They were expectant as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. They were fired up. They were excited. They were anticipatory. They were enthused. They were, in hope, they were hopeful. Jesus had finally stopped being a countryside preacher out there and now was riding into Jerusalem as the coming king. And with a lot of different expectations buried in their hearts, this crowd shared one thing in common. They were thrilled that Jesus had come into their city as the king and they were not shy to voice their expectations loudly and with loads of passion. Don't miss this. The people were expectant. That very first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, which actually uh, it was a profound day, the conquering king had come into their lives front and center and they felt that things would now be different. And here's the parallel I'm gonna make tonight. I don't miss this. And that is that you and I do the same thing that they did, but today. You see, Jesus still rides into people's lives. Did you understand that? Do you understand that? I mean, he doesn't ride on a donkey into our lives and we don't put palm branches in front of him, but he is the resurrected savior who is still alive today. And he likes to enter into people's lives today. So pictorially, let's get this picture in our heads. He still rides into people's lives today. And when he rides into our lives, we are expectant of certain things that he will do. And here's what we're gonna learn today is that some of the things that the crowds expected of Jesus back then were way too high or way too low. They were unrealistic expectations. But then there was one thing that he came into their lives to do that was the core and the most meaningful, and many of them failed to grasp it. And my point is, I think it's happening today. I think that for a lot of Christians, and certainly for a lot of seekers, Jesus rides into their life today, and we expect him to do certain things, and when he doesn't do it, we experience profound disappointment syndrome, and we become a spiritual casualty, but the problem was not with Jesus. The problem was not with him riding into our lives. The problem was with our perspective, our theology, what we thought he was gonna do that he didn't do. The same thing the crowds dealt with back then. That's what we're gonna explore right now. So notice with me three sets of expectations that the various people in the crowds and among the disciples had back then. Three expectations that I believe still exist today in many of us that if we're not careful can set us up for profound disappointment. And the first expectation they had of Jesus was this, is that they expected him to be a problem-solving Jesus. You're gonna wanna write that down. You're going to want to chisel that in stone because this is where a lot of Christians are today, a problem-solving Jesus. You know, one of the things that almost every New Testament scholar and expert across denominational lines agrees upon is that the crowds back then, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, expected that Jesus was there to set up an earthly kingdom that would deliver the Jewish people from secular Roman rule and cultural bondage. In other words, they expected him to fix their societal, religious, and personal problems. 
I mean, think about what you know about this story. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as the long-awaited Messiah who had been predicted for thousands of years to come and rescue Israel and bring her back to the glory days. He came in the vein of King David when Israel was a theocracy and set up as a, as a monarchy to, to lead the people in glorious religious and spiritual revival. And so they saw Jesus coming in the lineage of King David and they thought he was going to set up shop in that culture back then and say, we are done with all these shenanigans that have gone on with Roman rule and Greek rule and Assyrian rule and Babylonian rule. And we're going to make things right that are so wrong with your lives. In short, they wanted this king coming into their town to set up physical shop and be a problem-solving Jesus. And boy, would they ever be disappointed. Many of you don't know this, but uh, the whole symbolism of Palm Sunday with the palm branches being laid out, and they also said they laid out their cloaks, is actually very rich when it comes to this problem-solving Jesus theology. Uh, this idea of laying palm branches down for a dignitary coming into Jerusalem had gone back thousands of years. It was done in the book of Kings with King Jehu when he came into town and it was done with Roman leaders and Greek leaders of that day and it was their cultural way of saying the king is now in the city, the physical king who's here to solve our problems, who's here to make things right. And so this idea of palm branches and things that we celebrate now 2,000 years later is a symbolism in many ways of their bad theology back then. That though Jesus did come as a king, we're going to see that in just a minute, <laughs> what he meant by king, at least in this iteration of his coming, was very different than what they expected. As we're going to see in a little while here, what Jesus meant by king is somebody who's going to rule, now watch this, in your soul and in your life. And through his church, it was a spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to set up. But they were off in thinking that it was going to be a physical kingdom which he was going to solve all of our problems. In short, they were going to be profoundly disappointed in just a few days, these cheering and applauding crowds, because Jesus wasn't going to fix all of their societal or even personal problems. And I'm gonna pick on some of you here in a minute here, so hang on to your chair. But before we even get to that, let me share with you why I'm so convinced that this problem-solving Jesus was not the one that, that came into Jerusalem that day that the crowds expected. And, and this is inarguable when you think about it. And that is that the same Jerusalem that he came into on Palm Sunday, watch this, is the same Jerusalem that he left when he ascended about, what, five or six weeks later. In other words, Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and there was Roman rule and there was cultural bondage and there were marriages falling apart and some of the kids had taken stupid pills and people had financial problems and all the problems that society deals with and then he was crucified, he was resurrected, he lived on this earth for 40 days, he ascended into heaven and when he ascended into heaven, Jerusalem on that level with all of their problems was essentially the same. 
And so my point is, is that if Jesus is a problem-solving Savior, then why would he leave Jerusalem that way? And the reason is simple, as we're going to see in a minute, because he's got a bigger plan for your life, a bigger plan for this world than simply solving all of our problems. Very quickly, before we move on, the reason that this is so important for you and I is that there are many Christians out there today, and I, I deal with many of you throughout the week, and I love you, I love you, but, but we have this, this view in our heads and our hearts that Jesus rides into our lives today as the conquering king, and he is going to solve at least all of my big problems. Here's what I hear from many of you. He is going to restore my failed marriage he is going to shape up my out-of-shape kids. He is going to get me back on track financially and give me more money. He is going to heal all of my damaged emotions that seem to plague me. There's even some formal theologies out there, and some of you know them, that have developed over the years that come very dangerously close to declaring that if you have enough faith in this problem-solving Jesus, then he will do it for you just like you ask him to and expect him to. The mantra goes like this, follow Jesus and you have a great marriage, semi-good kids, lots of money and no more depression, discouragement or anxiety. He rides into town and he rides into town as a problem-solving Jesus and he is gonna solve all of my problems because that's what Jesus does. The only problem with that theology is twofold. You ready for this? It's biblically wrong and it doesn't work. How's that one for size? It's just not true biblically. That's maybe for another sermon. I can prove that to you, that this man of sorrows, who Paul the apostle declared, is made strong through his weakness, in other words, through his problems, still in his life, that's a whole other theology. It also doesn't work. I've dealt with way too many people over the years who bought into that lie and were sorely disappointed with the Jesus that they thought was riding into their lives. And I don't want to be heard wrong here today. I want to make something really clear right now because I, this is Holy Week, as Neil said earlier. It's a very busy week for me, and I really don't want any emails from you guys this week. So let me make at least negative ones. Positive ones, send them, please. But negative ones, no. Here's the deal. I, I do believe that God does enter our lives and fix some of the problems we have. Amen to that? I do. I, I've seen God and I believe that he does restore messed up marriages. He does call wayward kids back to himself. He does help us not spend money that we don't have and learn how to not get into debt. And I think he does heal damaged emotions. Don't, don't hear me saying he doesn't do those things. All I'm saying is this. He doesn't do them all the time, and he certainly doesn't do them on our timeline and in the way that we want them done. God does want to help you in your life, but it's up to him on how he's going to do that. And yet the hardest thing to hear is that he does declare that the things that you are so concerned with, that you think are these huge problems, he doesn't see it that way. He, you have a much bigger and different problem that he's here to deal with, which we'll get to in a minute, but all your little daily problems, what the Bible actually calls light momentary struggles, you like that one for size? 
Light, momentary struggles. That's what the Bible calls your problems. He's not as concerned with those as he is with something else. And so though he does fix our problems, here's the difference. That's different than smacking a label on Jesus and calling him a problem-solving savior. Because if you do that, you're in bad theology realm. Even though he might fix your problems at times, he is much more than a problem-solving Jesus. Much more than that. What do you expect from this man riding into your life? Now, a little bit more quickly as you're chewing on that, notice with me a second expectation that some in the crowds had back then that I believe many have today. And, and, and if you didn't like the first one, I, I just got to tell you, it gets worse. And so hang on to your chair. We're going to end on a glorious note. Please just hang in there. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to like breakfast here after church. So don't, don't worry about that. But, but here's the second uh, uh, expectation they had and that's that they wanted a power producing Jesus they wanted a power producing Jesus but look at how this is so clearly contained in the text in verse 37 of the story that was read earlier it said and as he Jesus was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. I put it there in, in bold, uh, linked together, praising God joyfully, what for? For the miracles. So in addition to being a problem-solving Jesus, they also were excited that Jesus was coming into town because this was the miracle worker who had power in and through him because he was the second person of the Trinity, God, the Son, coming to earth. So obviously he would have power, and yet they expected a power-producing Jesus to ride into their lives, naturally so. That word miracles here is probably better translated uh, deeds of power. It's the uh, Greek word dunamis, where we get the English word dynamite from. Boom, explosive power. So the new revised standard version actually translates it deeds of power. And it simply means that these people were enamored as they followed Jesus with all the supernatural things that he did the power that he displayed, the miracles, the healings, the life-changing teachings, the freedom from bondage. And so again, naturally so, they, they praised him as he came into town because a power-producing Jesus was now on the scene. <laughs> the only thing I can tell you is, boy, would they ever be disappointed in about five days because what was gonna happen to this power-producing Jesus he was going to be arrested, beaten, humiliated, and then killed on a cross. And the disciples all scattered. They hid out in what we call the upper room, and they had all of their expectations shattered. Not only did he prove, not prove himself as a problem-solving Jesus, but this power-producing Jesus didn't come through. Now, we're going to celebrate next week... <laughs> what power really means when we talk about what happened on the third day after his death. Anybody, no, spoiler alert, he rises from the dead. <laughs> and, and so we're gonna see some power happening here. But this whole idea, now watch this, of, of, of beatings and humiliation and arrests and, and death and being in that grave three days and then rising, that would become a pattern. <laughs> 
for all the disciples for the very rest of their lives. In other words, they didn't always get power from Jesus, at least power in the way that they wanted it to, power the way that you and I want it today, power to make our lives more comfortable and better. But look at how Paul the Apostle would eventually describe the power of God. You ready for this one? I love this. He says, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but still breathing. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Let me ask you, is that the kind of power you receive from Jesus today? Because that's the kind of power, by the way, you were very quiet on that one. That's the kind of power that he wants to deliver into our lives. And let's face it, many Christians today, they're not really interested in that kind of power. Now, the kind of power they want is that, hey, my marriage is struggling, you better save it. Or, you know, I'm in Mayo and I got a bad health report, better heal me. You know, and, 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 and you know, my kid's going off the deep end and I need you to change him right now. Now, now, could it be that, that God at times, again, he, he does give us power for those things in his choosing, but at times he says, how about the power to persevere in the midst of all that? How about the power to give you strength when your day is coming for you to die and yet you're not really ready to die, but your body's giving up and he's not gonna heal it, he's gonna call you home. By the way, that was a story of my dear mother and uh, yet she sat there and said, but if it's my time, I'm ready to meet my Savior. See, I think it takes power to do that. <laughs> and that's the kind of power that sometimes, many times, Jesus wants to give us. It's not always on our terms. What do you expect from this man riding into your lives? So you got a problem-solving Jesus, a power-producing Jesus. And then lastly, before we wrap this up in a, in a life-giving way, there are many who are also uh, expecting a peace-giving Jesus. Now, again, we got to be very careful with this one. Many of you know your Bible. He does give peace. Look at what they were yelling back then as he was riding in Jerusalem. It says they were saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That phrase, peace in heaven, actually should be reversed here in the NASB. In the Greek, it literally means a heavenly peace. It means a peace that comes to you on earth from heaven. That's what they were asking for. And they were saying that now that Jesus is in town, peace has come our way. We're going to feel good all the time. And things are going to be good in Jerusalem now. And we're not going to have any more worry or anxiety or even all that much struggle because the king is now here. And again, need I say, they probably were a bit disappointed on that one. Because again, it's tricky. Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus give peace to our lives, yes or no? Yes. But the same guy that said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, is also the same guy that said, I did not come to this earth to give peace, but to bring a sword. And so the reality is, is that there are times that he gives peace, but there are times where we have to struggle and have unrest in this life, watch this, in order to get to the peace. And if you don't believe me, look at Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle, by the way, is the guy who wrote those famous words that many of you cling to, a peace that passeth understanding. I hear Christians quote that all the time. And by the way, that's very real. There are times that he gives us a peace that passeth understanding. 
But there's also times where we say this like Paul the Apostle. Ready for this? This is in the Bible. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. Or how about this one in 2 Thessalonians? He says, and God will give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. And some of you are saying, see, see, I told you. Well, read the rest of the sentence. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Here's what we learn about this gang. We don't have a lot of time to spend on this right now. But, but here's what we learn from this. He, he does give us a, a taste of peace now when we need it most. He, he is a peace-giving Jesus in one sense. But many Christians are disappointed because they still have to struggle. They're still going to have unrest. They're still going to have fears within. And, and they, they look to Jesus riding in their lives and they say, what's up with that? And you know what he says to us? Get your expectations right. Whoever promised you a non-struggling life? In fact, in John 16, Larry quoted it last week. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But then he says, take heart because I have overcome the world. <laughs> so, so there's the balance. But what do you expect from this man riding into your lives? Many Christians today are disappointed because they didn't get their problem-solving Jesus. They didn't get their power-producing Jesus. They didn't get their peace-giving Jesus, at least in the way that they wanted it. The problem, however, is not with any of that. It's with their expectations. Because when you get right down to it, there is one thing. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. There is one thing that Jesus promises to us as the man riding into our lives that is true every day, every moment of every day. It's true no matter how much peace, power, or problem-solving ability you have. It's true for you whether you feel good or not. It's the deepest, most meaningful thing he could ever bring to your life. You ready for this? And that is that Jesus rode into town as a redemption offering Jesus. That was a really good place for an amen. So let's take another run at that. <laughs> he came into our town as a redemption offering Jesus. Amen. And it's true. You see, here's the deal with this. It's interesting. Three years before the very first Palm Sunday, when Jesus was just starting out his public ministry, before anyone knew who he was or why he had came, John the Baptist who was Jesus' cousin, one day saw Jesus out in the open there and picture this, he yelled in front of everybody and for everybody to hear, like yelled across the courtyard, he said, there's the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. Picture that in your mind. It's John 1, 29. He yells, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Here's what you need to know about that statement. Talk about a spoiler alert. Talk about telling you the, 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 the end at the beginning. I mean, that sums up everything that was gonna happen over the next three years, everything that was gonna happen during Holy Week, everything that would happen on Easter weekend, and everything that God cares about in your life for the last however long you've been alive. Listen, church, he cares about your problems. He wants to give you power. 
He's gonna give you peace. I'm not here to tell you any of that, but his number one agenda in your life, watch this, is to deal with the deepest, most vexing source of all of your problems. He's here to deal with the thing that creates absolute distance from him right from your birth. He rides into your life to deal with the thing that separates each and every one of us from the God who made us and loves us. He's here to deal with that dragon in your life that has created such a mess of your life. And it's a dragon so strong that no matter how good or righteous you try to be, you can never slay it. Only Jesus can slay it. And that's why he came into your life. And what is this we're talking about? You ready for this? It's your sin. It's that stubbornness inside of you. Let's be honest right now. You all have it. I sure have it. My wife's in this service. She's about ready to yell amen. It's that stubbornness inside of you. That that, that, that area of you in which you dig your heels in and say, I am going to do life my way. And I'm going to get what I want. Have you ever asked yourself, where does that come from? Some of you think that's a wonderful thing. It's your courage, whatever. It's not. It's a dark side of you that the Bible says is all about the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. And it's deep inside of you and it separates you from God and it separates you from your spouse when it rears its ugly head and and, and it's what's created some problems with your kids and it's why you can't get along with people at work. I I mean, it's in you. Have you ever stopped to think that maybe the problem's you? The Bible says that. And the Bible says we all have that inside of us. It's called sin. And here's the deepest problem of sin is that it separates us from God. And if something's not done about it, you will spend a Christless eternity without him because God has to somehow deal with your sin. And the reason that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, the reason he comes riding into your life is to offer you redemption, forgiveness, to say, let's you and me wipe the slate clean. I went to a cross and bore your sin on me. And let's wipe the slate clean as you believe and trust and follow me. And now you can say like Jeremiah did in the Old Testament in the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah once quoted these famous words. He said, when I wake up, his mercies are new every morning. So here's how this works. As you embrace this redemption offering Jesus into your life, say you have a day where it just didn't go your way. There were problems he didn't solve. (laughs) There was power you didn't get. There was peace that did not flow like a river in your life. And so you go to bed. Maybe you pop an Ambien because you really want to get a good night's sleep. And then you wake up the next morning. And you know what your opportunity is because a redemption offering Jesus is in your life? You ready for this? You can say even before your, your feet hit the floor. His mercy is new every morning. Everything that happened yesterday is water under the bridge. He loves me. I got a new lease on life. He's forgiven me for every sin, past, present, and future. Even the dreams I had, which were probably sinful, wiped away. 
The slate is wiped clean. His blood covers it all. I'm forgiven. And now here's your perspective. And some of you don't get this yet. I, I want to help you get there. Now here's your perspective when you wake up like that. You say, and you know what? If today is like yesterday and all my problems are not solved, and if the power isn't all there, and if peace doesn't flow like a river, it's okay. Because I am loved, and I am his, and he is mine, and nothing can take that away. Amen? As Jesus said, amen. <laughs> Here's how you got to see it, church. Jesus said that they can kill the body, but they can't touch the soul. So there's something now inside of you. There's something inside of me that goes deeper than any of the expectations that we have in life. And that thing that now is inside of you because of Jesus is so deep, it is so entrenched, it's not going anywhere. We call it eternal security that you can expect that all the time. Whether you feel it or not, whether you're having a good day or not, in one sense, it doesn't matter. Have you ever wondered why Paul the Apostle could get beaten up, thrown into jail, and then start singing hymns like he's in church? Have you ever wondered how a guy could do that? Have you ever wondered how a guy could be sitting in jail in Rome knowing he's about ready to be put to death and write in the book of Philippians, my joy is made complete. Who writes letters like that from jail? I'll tell you writes letters like that from jail. People who have Jesus riding into their life as a redemption offering Jesus and know that even though everything's crazy out there, they're okay in here. And even though there's struggle, even though there's difficulty, because again, Paul felt all of that. You read it earlier. We're hard pressed on every side. You know, he got all that. He's real. <laughs> but there's something deeper that is more real still. And it has to do with Jesus and a very right expectation of this Jesus. You know, one of the reasons that I, I preach this so strongly <laughs> is because this has been my experience with the Lord. Uh, Dave Hall's here, one of our elders, and we share a spiritual birthday, March 11th. And uh, March 11th, 1981, so 37 years ago, I accepted the Lord. I was 17 years old quite frankly, a dumb high school kid. I, I, I was rebellious, rather shallow, but I was spiritually thirsty. I didn't know anything about this book, nothing. In, in fact, I was so dumb about this book that if you'd asked me about the Bible when I was 17 years old, I would have told you, because this is what, I think a lot of people think this, I just thought Jesus wrote the whole Bible, right? Like Jesus is the man, you know, and, and, and this is his book, and so he wrote the whole thing. And so I just assumed that the Bible was written by Jesus, and yet one day, uh, in my spiritual thirst, somebody shared with me uh, some things from this book, and, and, and they really only shared two things with me. Now, latch on to this, because I'm so thankful for the person that led me to Christ. Because what he didn't share with me is that, hey, you know, if you invite Jesus into your life, man, he's going to fix your problems. You know, and if you invite Jesus into your life, man, you're going to feel a power surging through you every day that, you know, you won't be able to explain that thing. And, and if you invite Jesus in your life, man, you're never going to struggle with anxiety or depression or discouragement. Peace flows like a river. He didn't say any of that to me, even though, let me be clear, no emails. There have been times since then that he has fixed my problems. He has given me peace. I experience his power. I mean, I get all that. No, what he explained to me was two things. He said, Jamie, the Bible says that you are a sinner who has a problem. 
I love how Tom Schrader responds to that. Schrader said that when somebody shared that with him when he was 30 years old, because Schrader got that explained to him when he was 30 years old, he said, I didn't have any problem with that. I had 30 years of experience to back that one up. <laughs> I mean, how about you? I, I, I didn't need help admitting I was a sinner. Some people do today. That's their pride. But I had done a lot of decadent things in the first 17 years of my life, and, and I knew that there was something wrong inside my soul. I knew that I had a problem with God. So that was the easy one. But then this gentleman explained to me this. He said, and you know, Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on a wooden cross. And when he died, he took your sin upon himself. He became your sin bearer, your substitute. And he died to forgive you and bring you into a relationship with God. Gang, I've said this to you before, but even as a dumb 17-year-old, I'm telling you, that was the first time anything, anybody ever said anything to me about God that made sense. First time. I remember a moment of absolute clarity. I now call it the Holy Spirit, where I said, that makes sense to me. How do I get that? And he said, well, let's pray right now. Let's pray for you to receive this man riding into your life as a redemption offering Savior. And you know what? That night when I prayed to receive Christ, I woke up the next morning and I knew that I was his and he was mine, but you know what I'd go on to struggle with? Problems. <laughs> Power to overcome temptation. Needed a lot of that over the years. And then peace has ebbed and flowed in my life. But here's my point, and I'm not bragging here. I'm just trying to help some of us get, get righted here. Um, I, I, I've never been disappointed in God. I don't know why, I just haven't. Maybe that's what makes me a, a, a pretty good pastor. But, but I've never looked God in the face and said, you let me down. You didn't solve my problems. You didn't give me that power. I, I want more peace. I, I mean, I do want all of that, but I don't blame God for that. <laughs> I still have too high of a view of the fall of humankind and my own sinfulness. And I thank him for saving my pathetic soul. How about you? I thank him that I can wake up every day and say his mercies are new every morning because I have a redemption offering Jesus riding front and center into my life and everything else is gravy. Last thought, C.S. Lewis, who had a wonderful way of saying things, said it this way. He said, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. Whoa. See, that's where some of us are right now. We've learned this through the school of hard knocks. All I'm trying to say today is let's put first things first. Palm Sunday has only one message. A man has ridden into your life and he's offering you redemption. Believe in him. Embrace him. Welcome him through faith into your life. And as you do that, second things are going to get thrown in. There's times he's going to solve your problems and you'll praise him for it. There's times he's going to give you power out of nowhere and you're going to praise him for it. And he's going to give you peace. But the reality is, is if you demand those things first, you run the risk of missing the first thing, the most important thing. Or you end up where Tony Campolo says, you're, you're engaging in an adventure and missing the point. Because the point is he loves you. And the point is he came for you. Believe in him, embrace him, and you'll never be disappointed with that. Let's pray. Father, 
I thank you that the gospel is so clear once we wade through all the muck that we make of it and we get down to the real core. And God, we've learned today through this simple Palm Sunday story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem that we can mess it up if we smack labels on him that he would not receive. Because Lord, the only label he's willing to accept is redemption accomplished and applied. Redemption brought to our lives through the forgiveness of our sin that sets us up to wake up each day and embrace Jesus anew. So Father, I pray that for some of us here today that have never embraced Jesus this way, may we embrace him now through belief and faith May we trust in him, the sin bearer, the sin forgiver of our lives, the redemption bringer. And God, may we mark today as our spiritual birthday. And Lord, for the rest of us, may we never allow second things to become first things, but keep first things first. Your mercies are new every day. We're so grateful for that, Lord. And so we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the church says together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.